Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Rebecca Rettig. Rebecca is the general counsel of the Ave Companies and began her legal career at Cravath, Swaith and Moore LLP in New York, litigating complex commercial disputes. Prior to joining the Ave Companies, Rebecca was a partner at Manat, Phelps and Phillips LLP in the financial service groups where she represented blockchain and crypto clients. But everyone listening to this knows Rebecca needs no interruption. She's been in the crypto space for quite some time. She's a prominent speaker on DeFi, DeFi regulation, and what a future could look like for the two. I'm excited to talk, to talk a bit more about her journey, Uki Dao, the ETHCC speech she gave, and the future of crypto law in general. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks. thanks so much for having me, Jacob. It's always fun to be here, and you always ask the most thoughtful questions, so excited to chat. Well, thank you. I'll try to live up to that in this one today. I thought we could start with your journey. And I find your journey really interesting, especially when you think about how crypto law has developed. You, you've tweeted a few times about your journey and advised about meeting people, talking with people, attending conferences as a good way for attorneys to get involved in the space. But when you were building your practice, there weren't all these conferences, especially all the virtual conferences. Crypto Twitter was relatively silent compared to what it is now. Your entry in the DeFi space came from working with Compound, and you mentioned that a client made an intro to the founder of the Ave companies for your current role. Could we just discuss maybe a 10,000-foot view of your journey and how you overcame some challenges throughout? Sure. As you noted at the intro, I started my career at Cravath, Swain & Moore, which is a very large, traditional white shoe law firm at doing litigation and regulatory enforcement work. And I do think we talked about this the last time I was on here. It's really important to get good training as a lawyer, even if you want to make sure you're dedicating the rest of your career to blockchain, crypto, Web3, whatever we're calling it now. But there are these two pieces to it. You need to understand the technology well. And that's why I started to go to sort of any conference I could find in New York that was related to blockchain. They were so much smaller. I went to one in the basement of a hotel. I think there were like 50 people, something, maybe 100. And it was very small. And I also met with a lot of other practitioners back when I started this, not in law, but sort of on the product side to find out what they were building, what they were thinking about and the like, just to really understand how everything was being built out now. It's almost more challenging now because there's there's just this huge ecosystem. Are we talking about CFI? Are we talking about DeFi? Are we talking about Web3 Social? Are we talking about blockchain analytics or you know uh, ZK rollups? There are so many different parts to the ecosystem now that it probably feels very daunting to get into the space. And 
I will say one of my favorite parts of being a lawyer here, especially being at a builder, is to learn about the products we're building and to work with our developers really close because it's the only way you can actually give good legal advice. And one of the things that all of our devs know is I will just ask lots of questions. So I make sure I understand what they're explaining to me because you know, one of my regrets in life is I'm not a coder. So, um, or don't know how to do it and haven't had the time to learn how to do it. But, you know, I do ask a lot of questions to make sure I really understand what they're explaining to me about the technology. That wasn't really a great 10,000 foot view of my career, but the cl- the best answer I can give you is I thought it was cool. I thought it was going to be really fun. And I thought it was going to let me stay a generalist, right? So I could do all different parts of law, but sort of have a specialty in the technology. And that's why I picked it back in the day. And I really just had this thought when I was in DC earlier this week, dealing with policy questions, which was, I just got into this because I thought it was going to be fun. And now it's really something very different. I mean, it's still really fun, but it's definitely very different than it was back in 2017. Well, I'm glad to hear you're still having fun. And, and thank you for touching on so many important points there. The one thing that I've learned as I've done these podcasts and as I've even matured and, and grown in my own legal career is how much work is put in by lawyers, not only in this space, but in general, to build up this understanding to the point where you can give a speech on regulating DeFi for an hour and a half, and it looks like you just walked up there and and gave. Tons of work goes into preparing years ahead of time, understanding the laws and regulations. But were there any times that were difficult for you when it comes to your legal career, particularly pertaining to crypto? Because you did transition into this space before... Like you said, there were all there was all this ecosystem built out. It was a lot riskier, I think, at least at that time, to be making a decision like that. Does something come to mind when you think about a difficult time or something you overcame? I think bringing clients through the regulatory enforcement process very early on in the space, because I did really start out as a litigator and, and doing regulatory enforcement work here. It was challenging. It, the, the challenge then is the same as the challenge now, which is to make sure that people understand how the technology works so that when you're, let's say you're prosecuting back when we're talking about in 2017, they were prosecuting the right things versus the wrong things. Now making sure people understand the technology is more pertinent when we come to, obviously, if I was still litigating, it would be pertinent. And when I was litigating, even right before I came to Ave, I wrote a brief that really walked the court through how the tech, how like a, uh, a DPoS system works. And that's really important, both still in litigation, but also now for me in talking to policy people to make sure that there's a real understanding of what the technology does so that you can make sure the regulation actually is going to work and not sort of work against what you're doing. And in terms of explaining to regulators, we've had the Uki Dao was one where there are many actors in the ecosystem getting involved, the Lexpunk armies involved, there's the DeFi Education Fund involved. Everyone in crypto law seems to be involved in some aspect. Could you, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on what's happened, where things are, why this could potentially be very concerning for DAOs or DeFi and, and legal liability generally. Yeah, so it, it, where to even begin on Uki DAO? So just to give some background to people who may, obviously people who listen to your podcast are pretty savvy, especially on legal developments in the space, but just to give a two second background, Uki DAO and the Uki protocol were previously the BZX protocol or the BZX DAO. And the BZX protocol allows basically for US, for 
were for retail participants to trade with leverage or margin. In the US, to offer leverage or margin trading, you have to be registered to US retail participants, you have to be registered with the CFTC. Prior to the DAO, there were two founders of BZX, the BZX protocol, who were who the SEC alleges in an enforcement action or an enforcement order were running the protocol as a business. And so they basically ran an unregistered, an unregistered business to allow US retail participants to engage with margin trading. So that's what the enforcement order came down on. There are unfortunate circumstances alleged relating to BZX protocol or Uki protocol and Uki DAO, where the founders made a public announcement saying, we're now going to transition everything to a DAO to get regulatory, to basically regulatory arbitrage out any of any liability for anybody. For better or worse, worse, the founders remained very involved in the DAO and the allegations now, separate from the enforcement order against the founders, is to say that the DAO took over running the business. And so the DAO itself was offering a protocol that let for let U.S. retail participants engage, illegally engage in margin trading in the United States. So the, the real allegation is that the DAO was running a business. Um, I don't know if the facts are perfect here and you, you sort of have to deal with the facts as they come in law, but I think the overall feeling is that it really, this case, and we'll get into some of the procedural particulars in a second, but if there's a ruling, whether through a default judgment, because none of the DAO members show up or through a long process with facts developed and things like that, it will essentially shut down um, sort of DAO voting because the CFTC's theory against the Uki DAO token holders is that only the people who voted were running the business through the DAO. And so we've seen a real chilling effect on DAO voting even since the complaint and this theory. And so it really shuts down this idea of decentralized, decentralized governance if you are going to hold people who vote liable for running a business. Again, the facts aren't perfect. It wasn't a, as far as I understand, it wasn't a DAO with hundreds of thousands of token holders and tons of participants. But even subsequent to the Uki DAO case, there were two snapshots relating to on the Uki DAO. And at least as far as the first one goes, no one voted. They did a second snapshot, and I think there was some very small voting, but it's clear that it's chilled it. And I've heard just behind the scenes from various token holders, both larger institutional participants and individuals don't want to vote in governance anymore until this gets clarified. I'll stop there for a second, and then we can go into the service issues and talk about what the DeFi Education Fund did with their amicus brief and stuff like that. Well, thank you. And I really appreciate the background. And one thing I've noticed just in speaking with people is there's... When, when we talk about decentralizing through token holders being, you, you mentioned hundreds of thousands, there's so many token holders. And the idea that a product is decentralized because there's so many token holders sounds analogous to people who don't understand smart contracts or these protocols to shareholders, right? If you have 100,000 shareholders versus 40 shareholders, why is the 100,000 shareholders a better option or decentralized in any way? But what I've realized even just through this conversation is we have to keep in mind the fact that they're not running the business. They're not voting on a board of directors. What these shareholders or token holders are doing are voting on potential protocol upgrades for a smart contract that runs autonomously. 
Th that's right. There has to be a real distinction between the code, the, the voting, what the DAO is even doing and enabled to do. I think, and we may get into this later, but if you have a, a protocol that doesn't even have an admin key and just runs autonomously and can never be changed, but you have a DAO that does treasury management, what's, what's liability there versus a DAO that can vote to change a protocol? Some of which has to happen just due to the nature of the protocol. It has to be dynamic. You have to be able to vote to change the code and add assets and things like that. So I, treating tr you cannot treat all DAOs the same is the takeaway for sure. But this is going to definitely, it has already impacted DAO voting. And thus, I know we're going to get into this later, but the concept of decentralization and what we can do from a long-term decentralization perspective as well. The other challenging thing in the Uki DAO case, which everyone's been super focused on, is the way that the CFTC tried to serve the DAO. And it goes to this dispersion of individuals and things like that. But the CFTC put in a motion for alternative service. Normally, when you bring a, a litigation against someone, you have to serve them because they, under the due process clause, they deserve notice of a case against them so they can defend against that. In the U.S., that usually requires personal service to an individual or it requires service to a registered agent for a business. So you get a physical copy of the complaint, things like that. Here, they ask for all, uh, the ability to serve in an alternative manner because in theory, it's not a business. And also, this is a dispersed group of individuals. And so they serve the complaint through the Uki Dow chat box, like a, almost like a help chat, and also by posting it on the governance forum. And there was a lot of concern over the fact that how do you even know that anyone who voted is manning the chat box? How do you know that anyone who voted is necessarily on the governance forum? And is that really the proper way to give to, to afford due process to anyone who participated in the DAO? And so the Lexfunk Army and the DeFi Education Fund filed amicus briefs to oppose the motion for alternative service and say, no, if you, if you have to go prove that you really afforded due process under your theory of the case to give the people who voted actual notice of this case and so they can defend themselves if, if they want to. So, Thank you for that background too. And it is such an important distinction. And Jason Gottlieb had a great tweet. I believe this was regarding Tornado Cash, but I think it applies here as well in that the regulators are taking the easy approach. It's almost the low hanging fruit, but it doesn't mean it's the right approach or one that should be taken. It's almost just taking action to say that you've taken action. And I believe in the, the Okidao case, they had actually settled already with the founders of the B0X protocol. Yeah, that's right. So in the enforcement order against the two founders of the BZX protocol and the founders of the BZX DAO, in footnote two, it says, We've resolved liability for running the BZX protocol against the founders. They also say we've resolved the founders liability for the BZX protocol too. And then the last sentence says, but we haven't resolved the Uki DAO's liability itself. Now, under a theory of a DAO being an unincorporated association, which is what the, what the CFTC alleges in the Uki DAO case, there's joint and several liability. So if you've already imposed liability against two members of the um, DAO or of this alleged unincorporated association, you should, and you collected fines from them, you should basically be able to say, well, you have the people on the hook, just go ahead and collect against them. That doesn't mean that there's not liability against other members of this unincorporated association, but it is a very aggressive move, I think, by the CFTC. But I think they're really trying to signal, here's what regulators and policymakers are really trying to signal. 
you cannot have Dino projects, right? They can't be decentralized in name only. We've seen that a lot across the board. And I can tell you that that is clear from the CFTC's case. This shouldn't be a Dino. You should not have a Dino DAO. And I think from everything else we've seen too, anything that's decentralized in name only is going to catch the attention of regulators and policymakers. It's very difficult because to me, it does seem a bit like a catch-22 where if you are truly decentralized, well, then it probably would be difficult to create some sort of LLC or association or some legal entity that could absolve you of liability. What, what are your thoughts on that idea? I mean, look, there's been a lot of efforts generally to talk about whether people are going to wrap DAOs in some sort of legal structure. There have been a lot of interesting proposals. Obviously, we have DAO legislation in Wyoming in the United States. DYDX came out with a theory of wrapping DAOs in a Guernsey trust and is putting something like that together. And there are concepts around wrapping DAOs, but I don't I don't know what that really will do from a long-term perspective that hasn't been tested yet, right? It's, it's, this is the first case we've ever seen against a DAO. And it also depends, like we said before, you can't treat all that DAOs the same. And there are questions about how people can contract with DAOs legally. Can you hold DAOs liable for their actions? Obviously, we're seeing that attempt to play that out now. I have mixed feelings, and I'm sure this will be a lightning rod point about whether you should be wrapping DAOs and legal entities. I understand why there is an impetus to do it. And there's a discussion of our DAO is going to be the corporations or the future. I like the, the decentralization ethos and the idea that we should be figuring out the new ways of working with DAOs rather than wrapping DAOs in old structures. If, if you're going to wrap it in an in a LLC, just do an LLC, right? It's, the same, it's kind of the same type of thing back from the ICO boom. If you had to ask people, why are you doing the ICO? And they said, well, we couldn't raise money the regular way. You shouldn't be doing an ICO. Same thing here. If you just want to have an LLC, just have an LLC, don't have a DAO. And if you really want to have some true decentralization, then have a DAO and think about new and different ways to engage in maybe old or legally historical structures like contracts and stuff like that. It is really difficult because every project that adds DAO to their name finds capital formation so much easier than if they hadn't had that in in that case. So it's it's very tempting. And you mentioned a really good point, which is DAOs in name only. And those are so prevalent and difficult to prove. And there's it's much more different than a company where a company is a company, you have to have people managing or you don't. You could talk about maybe directors when it comes to offshore entities that are claiming they're offshore. Meanwhile, who knows where the, the actual ownership really is. Yeah. That that comes to mind for me. But even the idea of when corporations were first created in, in Britain and in, the, in America throughout the world, they had legal entity status or they were given legal entity status and that proliferated the rise of corporations and their power. And we've seen them grow since. But it's such a fundamental change when you talk about a smart contract or a protocol that runs autonomously without needing that human interference or that human addition in the future. And I, I I don't know what the answer is here, obviously, but it will be interesting to see how this plays out, especially in respect to the idea of fully decentralized. Do you see this case as posing a threat to a full decentralization strategy as outlined by Mark Boron, Miles Jennings, and, and a few others in the space? Yes and no. I think, as we said before, the the message is supposed to be 
don't create a DAO to run a, an illegal business that you yourself could not run, right? It's I really think it was the that that quote that said, we're going to create a DAO so we don't have any more legal liability. If it's clear that that was the purpose of the DAO, you're going to have a real hard time. But then on the flip side, are you really decentralizing anyway, if you're just sort of using the DAO as a shield from what the business was actually doing? I think if you're going to engage in true decentralization, which is something that Mark and I used to talk a lot about to clients when we were in private practice, Mark has a great article out about sufficient decentralization. And I talk a lot about now generally is make it make it real decentralization. And I say that people always ask, oh, what's your advice to early founders? If you're going to be decentralized, make a plan at the beginning. Same time as you start planning the protocol, also plan how you're going to decentralize if that's part of your business plan. And you need to start planning at the beginning because I will say from all my work, it is hard for for developers to let go of something they created. And I understand that, right? This is a creative process. You see a protocol flourishing. And I think that it's hard to let go. So if you start planning the process really early on, one, you will protect yourself from a, you can protect yourself. And also you'll have a plan to truly meaningfully decentralize. I also think what we don't talk a lot about in the legal space is that this isn't how governance is going to look for the next five or 10 years. We're at governance 1.0 at best. I think the system is in no way ideal yet. I think there needs to be better ways of voting, right? Like optimistic voting should be really interesting as we go forward where there's only veto power and get passed. I think when um, DAOs were created three or four years ago, there were these very high voting thresholds or quorums, which really didn't work for a long time. And I, there have been some talk about whether people are going to create governance mining to incentivize people. There are all these new delegate systems, quadratic voting and things like that that we're seeing. So I just think we're still at a very early stage of governance. And the the takeaway point I think that you sort of brought up is if we're going to meaningly decentralize, you need to think about what your governance mechanism really looks like so that it's not just a front and that it really allows for this dispersed participation. And we don't go back, as you said, to sort of what corporations look like and having a small group of people run the whole thing. There's so much to be optimistic <laughs> about. And it, it often, I think we forget, having been in the space for, for you longer than me, but even a few years, you forget how early stage we truly, yeah. truly are and how fast we are accelerating at the same time in that we're already creating new ways to move forward DAO governance when potential that they have is just just enormous. It will come down to, in my opinion, how regulation proceeds, like the chilling effect on DAO voting, like you've mentioned, is real. And if that's what the governments want, or if that's what regulators aim to do, that could have a drastic, dangerous effect and a drastic effect, particularly on in particular jurisdictions, and I'm sure there will be entities offshore in different ways around that, as there always are. But you, you've spoken a lot about DeFi regulation, and I really enjoyed your speech at ETHCC uh, about where we are on DeFi regulation today. Before we get into some nuance and some things that you mentioned, I thought I'd love to hear your thoughts on the regulation and DeFi coexistence at a fundamental level. Is are the two compatible at the end of the day? I'll give the lawyer answer. It depends. It, it's exactly your point, though. It depends on how the regulation is built out, right? I my And I said this at ECC, and I say this a lot. So for anyone who's heard me say it before, sorry that you have to hear it again. But you want to make sure the regulation, right, if there is any, as it relates to DeFi, does not relate to the writing of code. 
right? That's protected. And that's not just protected in the United States, but that will also chill innovation if you in other places as well. And what I really don't want is for the regulation to turn software developers into financial intermediaries. And look, you also don't want to regulate code, right? You don't want to regulate the protocols because while there's this whole, there's been a lot of discussion, oh, come in and register. Like a protocol can't get up and walk into a regulatory body and sort of register. So you have to think, who are we regulating in the DeFi space on what basis? And in what way? And if we don't get those right, you're right, there will be a real chilling effect and we will not have DeFi as we know it today. I, I also think any regulation, obviously, and I would say the DeFi space is regulated today. We have consumer protection laws. We have other laws in place. So when people say DeFi is the Wild West, it's completely unregulated. I don't believe that's true. Anybody who puts a product out has to adhere to a lot of regulation, particularly on consumer protection, user protection. That just looks different. A lot of what I say is regulators like to say, well, same risk, same regulation. True for CFI. Yes, those are very traditional structures, just with a different asset class. In DeFi, it is different risks, but you can get the same regulatory outcome. You just can't get them the same way unless you want to turn it into CFI or have software developers be financial intermediaries, and then it's just fintech, and then we've lost all the fun and the interest and the decentralization ethos that came from the cypherpunks back in the day. So many great points there. <laughs> and one one I wanted to touch on is the misunderstanding, and it goes back to education, that people have when it comes to DeFi as the Wild West. And I think as lawyers, we're able to recognize that DeFi is so much better than the existing system because you can encode these regulations in the software. And so now you don't need to rely on a lawsuit to enforce something like cr credit payments on a bankruptcy proceeding. There can be on chain and in the system a way for payouts to be made. There are so many things that you can encode and now you don't have to necessarily trust on a third party to regulate or make sure everything goes okay. And I think that often gets missed when people talk about DeFi as the Wild West. I mean, I think that when you talk about those kinds of things, right, like lack of counterparty risk, automaticity, financial independence for users, and you explain it, it sounds too good to be true. I mean, right. it, it does. Maybe that's the problem. Well, a little bit, it does sound too good to be true. And yeah. then when you have that coupled with a lot of announcements about rug pulls or hacks of bridges and things like that. It's very hard for people who are not in the space and haven't been doing this for a long time to square those two things together. And I can imagine if someone told my grandfather 40 years ago that there would be a way for him to send a message to his brother in England in a millisecond through this internet, he would have had some doubts as well. And yeah. if you hear about people raising money for internet companies that were um, doing illicit things or, or didn't turn out, of course, that, that would be the, the thing. And also the point on liability for developers. I mean, it seems to be such a silly thing when you think about the SWIFT system and other international payment systems that have been developed. They don't go after regulating the people who wrote the code there. They go after the banks. They go after the financial intermediaries who are actually using that in a certain manner for a certain type of business. Yeah. And that's why when you look at the DeFi system, you need to think, well, who are the service providers in DeFi, right? Who are the um, intermediaries is not the right word, but really the service providers, that, the centralized service providers that bring you into the system. And does it, does it make sense? I'm just saying that's the question to put the regulation there. And what do those people do? 
And what should the, you have to give, if you're going to, if that's where you're going to regulate, the regulation should be proportional to what those people are doing. So it's very, it's very nuanced and complex. And it is because we've all talked about DeFi as this new financial system. And we use words from the old financial system here, right? Exchanges, lending, derivatives, right? Well, if you hear those things, any regulator or policymaker is going to say, okay, well, doing that in an electronic way, shouldn't that just, is that fintech, shouldn't that just be regulated the same way? It's very difficult to explain, especially something like an admin key for no admin key for Uniswap or Tornado Cash, and they just run forever and you don't need another human to do it. It's hard to get your mind around. Like, I know that, you know, there's, there is certainly, um, I don't know, whispers of hostility against thinking about regulation of DeFi and specifically the way it's been coming out. But you have to at least give a, a little bit of deference to the fact that it is hard to get your mind around. It's just, it is. I mean, I've heard a lot of, I don't get it. And I've, I've come to the place of drawing pictures to explain what each layer does and where the information is and to make sure, you know, that people understand that front ends don't route transactions, things like that. So it's complicated. It is. It is. And it's not unlike every system that has changed the world before when you think of railroads and mm. the, the combustion engine, cars. Electricity. It's all, it all took time. Electricity, right? It's hard to wrap your head around. It is. And it's hard to think about how this will change the world. I would actually encourage everybody to read some histories of new innovations when they're in the space, especially lawyers, because there were grifters and what we call rug pulls and stuff like that with the, when we were developing um, you know, steam engines and the like. There was an attempt by Edison to ban AC that Westinghouse had created. Obviously, that was more of a competitive issue, but AC was seen as evil and something that would harm humans and things like that until there was a real reveal about how the technology worked. And so when you hear about that, I think it, it has given me comfort to read about those things and understand that there's always this right. resistance to technology at the outset. Absolutely. And, and one of my biggest hangups and something that jaded me a little bit in the crypto space when I first got involved is the enormous speculation. And people say, oh, well, crypto is just a new method to speculate. Okay, maybe. But if you look at railroads, car companies, when all these innovations were first created, it started with speculation and the building came later. And that's, I think, what we'll see here as well to, to a big extent. One thing you mentioned in your speech was, quote, to make sure the tech can grow, we need greater legal and regulatory clarity for Web3, unquote. Regulatory clarity on a global scale. Do we need it to that extent? Is that even possible? Or can the space thrive despite differing approaches to DeFi regulation in jurisdictions around the world? So DeFi regulation, you need to go back to what we said, like, what are the risks, right? What risks are we trying to mitigate for? I think the when you think about what risks are mitigated for in regulation of TradFi, it's market integrity and consumer protection. Well, how do we ensure that markets in DeFi stay safe? It's, it's really a cyber risk issue, right? Are there hacks? Are there vulnerabilities in the code, right? How, because the way, the reason we have TradFi regulation as it is, right, with the intermediaries is it, it makes there be no ability for subjective judgment over user assets because you don't want people to have another individual making decisions over their money. So here, 
how do we protect user assets, especially when you have no intermediary because everything in DeFi should be non-custodial. If it's custodial, it's not DeFi. If it's non-custodial, then you need to ensure that the software works as it does, as it's intended to. And so that's through really the security audit system, other types of cyber type testing, testing of the code, stress testing, risk management, things like that. So can you do a standard setting of what should be the standards that developers adhere to? And obviously you do not want to regulate how they write code, but deploying to a standard setting system where you have a number of security audits, maybe there are certified, these are just ideas. Maybe there are certified auditors, right? Who are approved by a certain regulator. The auditors then file audit reports with that regulator. The company has to file disclosures about how they handled the audit, right? That's how you can combat something like the market integrity risk that comes from cyber. I'm sure there are lots of other ways to do it too. And then the other piece of it is consumer and user protection. A lot of that comes from disclosure, having required disclosures. And then the last piece that there is a lot of focus on is how do we combat for AML risk? And that is really challenging in DeFi without turning somebody into an intermediary because and to say, well, there, you know, it does. If you're interacting with somebody on the SDN list, but you don't know it, is that good enough? No, it's probably not good enough for U.S. regulators. Probably not good for any SATF compliant country. So I think AML is a really challenging question to think about. Obviously, nobody wants there to be censorship at the base layer or even at the protocol level. And then the question is, well, do you start doing KYC on front ends? Which when you think about what front ends really do is just an information transmission type of thing. Very, it's hard to wrap your mind around why you should have to do KYC there if they're not really routing orders, bundling transactions and things like that. But that is where everybody, I think on the regulatory space is really thinking about, or in the policy space right now, is thinking about is how to bring AML in, in a way that doesn't kill the information. And that's why we have to think about who are the centralized service providers and where are they going to come from in DeFi? Yeah, it seems the centralized service providers would, acting as on-ramps into the ecosystem, would be the lowest hanging fruit, in my opinion, and the easiest to to begin regulating and to implement a KYC if you want to bring fiat and translate that into crypto. And then once you're in, fair use. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. When we we talk about centralized exchanges and it's easier to to implement KYC and things like that, then you have this idea of decentralized exchanges, decentralized protocols, true decentralization. This is difficult to prove. It's difficult to achieve. It's difficult to think about, really, to wrap your head around. And the Dow report, I thought, underscored how decentralization is an example. could be used as a smokescreen. Ether Delta had elements of control, the front-end web page hosting. This control... Well, and a centralized order book in Ether Delta and holding the admin (laughs) key. Ether Delta is not... Yeah, but keep going. Not a good example, of course. (laughs) A good, bad example. Yeah. And... Whenever there's this control, that gives regulators someone to point to and someone to go after. Is there, is there a solution or a, something that you think will emerge in the future that can balance the need for front ends with decentralization at the back end and, and what that future could look like? Self-hosted front ends? Yeah. I mean, I think people are trying to build that now where you download the front ends and you host them yourself. <laughs> And look, I think, I think there are always, as someone asked me this yesterday too, there will always be open source permissionless front ends, 
that is going to exist forever. I think the front ends may get regulated if you're doing it as a business or for consideration mm -hmm. or get taking fees, things like that. Actually, let's start that over. Let's start that part over. So I think for the front ends, you may be regulated if you're taking fees or otherwise making a, something along those lines, but there will always be permissionless front ends and open source front ends. Um, and maybe they'll be hosted by DAOs themselves. I love to see something like that, where a DAO has, takes a front end from a protocol and hosts it through an ENS domain or something along those lines. But you'll always have permissionless front ends. The question will just be like, are we going to see the de development or proliferation of front ends that take fees? It's a little bit antithetical to the ethos of Web3 and DeFi, but it may be something that emerges depending on how regulation and legislation is written. Yeah, regulation, legislation, that to me will be what shapes the river and the river is going to be flowing. It's just how it will be, how it will be moved. <laughs> I'd love to hear your thoughts on MICA and we've seen it's, it's moving forward and it's offering whether people are pro or against it, it does offer some clarity and it does offer some rules and regulations. How do you see MICA affecting crypto in the EU and the risk of validators being regulated as custodians in the US? I know those are two. Those are two different questions. things. Okay, so let's start with Mika. Yeah. Mika was the impetus for Mika was DM or Libra back in the day, but it really has evolved since then. It is meant to regulate what are called CASPs, centralized, I mean, crypto asset service providers. So really, as we were talking about, like much more CFI, custodial exchanges, custodians, brokers, people who are taking custody and, and doing sort of traditional acts, but with crypto assets. It also goes through a classification system for different type of crypto assets. So it does cover e-money, which are things like USDC. It does cover what it calls asset referenced tokens. So tokens that derive their value from a different asset, whether it be a crypto asset or a real world asset or something like that. It does include algorithmic stable coins. But the interesting part about that is, is that there's an, there is a carve out for DeFi in the preamble of Mika. So it says, if you are running your business in a partially decentralized manner, you are, you are captured by Mika. So something like a Dino would definitely be captured by Mika. But it says if, if this is a fully decentralized system, then it, is not, uh, then it is not captured by Mika. And then Mika also excludes NFTs. That is not to say that DeFi will never get regulated in the EU, but they are various directorate generals in the European Commission and through the European Parliament are undertaking a study of how DeFi works and what regulation could actually be. And I, they are, they are not, they are trying to create a thoughtful system as it, as it relates to DeFi. Mika definitely attempts to give some real clarity around how to work and deal with these systems in the EU. And I think that there, there's, there certainly was a valiant attempt to do so and to bring and to really just keep this narrow to centralized actors in the crypto space. There are definitely difficult parts of it. It won't be in, they just voted on the technical language and approved it, but it won't be in full force and effect until 2024. Yeah, we, we have some time there. And just the, the other question relating to the risk of validators being regulated, regulated as custodians in the US. And we've seen, I believe it was a case out of Texas that touched a bit on the location of nodes being predominantly in the US. So the, the theory of creating jurisdiction based on where nodes exist is not new. I think the first time I remember seeing that was actually in the motion to dismiss in the Tezos case, where the judge said there was at least jurisdiction because a number of nodes for Tezos were, were running out of the United States. 
that was 2019 maybe, but that was definitely years ago. The interesting thing about including that one allegation in that complaint from the SEC is there was already jurisdiction in the United States based on the acts that were happening at the time as it related to the complaint. So including the statement that having nodes in the U.S. created created jurisdiction was, I think, the SEC showing their cards to say, we have jurisdiction over all of you. So it doesn't matter where you are and how far outside the U.S. you are. If you're raising funds and the nodes in the U.S. validate, I don't know, somebody transferring ETH to you in exchange for your token... We still got you. I don't think that will ever really be litigated in this case because there is, there's not going to be a huge con. I'd be surprised if there's a contest, contest over jurisdiction for that case because so much happened in the United States. There were U.S. persons involved. Um, I vaguely remember that the defendant came to the United States. So there were already enough what are called sufficient contacts for there to be jurisdiction. So it was really just the SEC showing their cards and and sort of as, as it's done, created a lot of concern over what that means for the breadth of SEC jurisdiction over crypto. Could we talk a bit about the Lens protocol? I've heard about it and I've, I've been introduced and I, I've, I haven't actually signed up because I think you need a referral or you needed to, to sign something. So I'd love to join. Okay. But so could, we, you, could you talk a bit about it? The most important thing we can do after this podcast is get your Lens handle. Thank you. So Lens <laughs> is, actually, I love to speak about Lens. So I'm excited that we get to talk about it because I really think it's a new, important primitive in the Web3 space, but it's Web3 social. So Lens is a protocol, a set of smart contracts. They are deployed on the Polygon blockchain because it's very quick, very cheap and efficient and eco-friendly. And Lens allows you to create your own social media profile you own your own content, you own your own data, you never turn any of it over into a centralized intermediary. And it also allows you to take all that content and data and plug it into any front end that you want to. So it also, I think, long term, and there have been a number of third parties who have created front ends already for, for things like, that it looks like Twitter. So Lenster, things that look like YouTube, things that look like music sharing, all of that is being created. And you will get to then curate all your own data. The other amazing part of Lens is not just that you will let, get to keep your own data and your own content, but you can use your content as you want to. And so one of the cool things that we've seen is that Lens enables people to allow for collects of their content. So if you posted a picture of your new dog and I thought your dog was really cute, I could collect the picture of your new dog by sending you some map via Polygon. And so it's also a way, it's really sort of the creator economy on steroids, if you think about it, because it will, it's not just, oh, here's my NFT and I'm selling all these NFTs and then you've run out. It's really your thoughts for the day or the month and people being able to collect those. So it's a way to enable people to participate in the economy in a new way too. I think Lens is the way forward. It is decentralized um, in a way that other Web3 social, even if they use the moniker decentralized, is not yet. And it's really user-owned and controlled. So it takes Sony's vision of having verticals across this user-owned internet, right? That's what Web3 is. And it takes, so fine, we have Gave Protocol that we created, DeFi, uh, now Web3 Social through Lens. And there's lots more from Stani's creative vision that will come out that really makes this user-owned internet into a reality. 
that is amazing. I we definitely need to chat about that because I've been I've been wanting to join, but there was I, I can't recall exactly what it is, but there is something that you need to do before you can join. We so, rolled it out slowly because it is so new and different, and we believed for users we wanted to ensure it worked correctly. But now it is a much more open system, so let's make sure we get your lens handle right after this. Amazing. Thank you, Rebecca, and I'll, I'll link lens in in the show notes too. For That'd be great. Who wants to check that out. Of course, it seems so important because we've made this huge trade-off when it comes to our data and privacy almost unknowingly. And now it's grown to such behemoth scales that to, to see projects open in the other direction is so important. So Rebecca, if you were teaching a what not to do to be successful in your career, what would be on that list? What would the syllabus cover? Yeah. I mean, oh, that's a long question. I mean, number one, it would be don't be somebody you're not, right? Authenticity is the most important thing. The other really important thing is making decisions without having all the information. Don't do that. And let's make it a short syllabus because people like to think in threes. So I'll give a third thing, which is um, don't only think like a lawyer. Think it, Think no matter if you're in-house or outside counsel, you need to think about who your client is and what they are doing in the world when you give advice. Lawyers like to think in absolutes. It's hard to sit with a gray area. If you're in crypto, it's almost all a gray. In, in many instances, it's a gray area. But you need to think about the realities of what your client is doing and what they're also trying to accomplish against the backdrop of the advice that you give. Amazing. Thank you for that. I think those are three really important things to keep in mind. I, I know I'll be thinking about them. The last question for you, Rebecca, is free time. And this isn't something that we talk often about when we're lawyers, especially in the crypto field, because there are so many other things to talk about. But what do you do with your free time? How do you like to, to spend your time outside of crypto law? I don't have much free time, but I don't sleep a lot. So I, I create my own free time. I love long distance running, for sure. I really love spending time with my family, especially being outside. We always go to sort of remote places to vacation together and do things like hiking and horseback riding and stuff like that. So that, that's what I really enjoy doing is sort of being outside and being active and being with the people I love the most. Amazing. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I will link to everything we talked about in the show notes as well as Rebecca's Twitter handle. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And and I really enjoyed this conversation. This was this was so fun. And it really was just a conversation. It was not sort of a back and forth. So I had a great time. You're a great host, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for the kind words. It, It means a lot.